Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. Evidence of America's obesity epidemic is so commonplace that perhaps we risk growing used to it. But the statistics should give us pause. In the United States, 68% of adults are estimated to be overweight, with 36% falling in the obesity category. Roughly 16% of children aged 6 to 19 are estimated to be obese, and so are at least 10% of children aged 2 to 5. Approximately 325,000 deaths in the U.S. each year are attributed to obesity which can contribute to an array of other health problems from cardiovascular disease and diabetes to loss of mobility and depression. If those statistics aren't enough to scare many adults into shape, they're even less likely to change the eating and exercise behaviors of children. And that brings us to today's guest, physical therapist Margaret Maggie O'Neill of Drexel University, who researches physical activity in children and has directed several programs designed to get children active, moving, and healthy. Overweight children are at risk to become overweight adults, so in the following interview, Maggie provides a broad analysis of America's weight problem and offers guidance for parents looking to rescue their children from the clutches of obesity. Maggie, before we talk about the obesity epidemic, let's define the term obesity. How is obesity classified? What's the difference between, say, just being overweight, quote-unquote, and being obese? What we usually use as defining childhood obesity has been set out by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC definition for childhood overweight and obesity is really based on body mass index, BMI, specific for age and gender in childhood. So when one measures a child's BMI, they take the raw value and use it in a growth curve to determine the child's weight status. And there are four weight categories on weight status and the category for which a child's BMI falls in the 85th to the 90, less than the 95th percentile is considered overweight, and above the 95th percentile is considered obese. So whereas adults, BMI value is used to determine overweight or obesity, in children that raw BMI value, which is a ratio of weight to height squared, is plotted in a growth curve, to take into consideration different growth rates and developmental rates in children. So the raw BMI score is plotted in the CDC growth curve to determine the child's weight status or weight category as underweight, healthy weight, overweight, or obese. And in overweight or obese, the category definitions are the 85th to less than 95th percentile BMI age for gender, that's overweight and equal to or above the 95th percentile, that's considered obese. And there's a specific growth curve by gender because boys and girls obviously grow at different rates. And so just to interpret that a little bit, obviously we all want to be as healthy as we can be, and so staying out of the overweight category is good. But if you're in the obese category, you are significantly overweight, and and that's going to lead to other problems, correct? Right. In fact, the old traffic light diet paradigm that's used in several health messages, we say things like 
The green is go. The healthy weight band from the 5th to 85th percentile, go. Keep doing what you're doing. You're eating healthfully. Your activity is healthful. You're maintaining a healthy weight. When you get to the overweight band, if you will, the 85th to below the 95th percentile, slow down and reconsider what you're doing because you can still start to have some negative health sequelae with overweight. But really, that's the zone where you'd want to slow down the yellow band and take a look at energy consumption, what you're eating, and your energy expenditure, what you're doing, and really try to push yourself back into the healthy weight before you go into the overweight, the red zone. You've got to stop that zone because that's the zone in which you will be more inclined to have other negative health sequelae, whether it's type 2 diabetes, some hypertension, some dyslipidemia, and other health metabolic syndrome type of syndromes. So those are more common health problems once you get to that overweight zone. That gives us a good idea of what obesity is, and I want to then go about a different definition. We hear on the media all the time now, obesity epidemic. It's almost becoming uncommon to hear the word obesity without epidemic right behind it. At least one definition for epidemic is a widespread occurrence of an infectious disease in a community. Now, I'm not sure if obesity is infectious the way, say, a flu is infectious, but we hear that label all the time, and my question to you is, is obesity epidemic a fair reflection of the scope of this problem? Yes, I think because of the trajectory and the increased prevalence of obesity in the last two decades, maybe three decades, it's been such an impressive increase in prevalence that it's a strong but a good word to describe the uh, growth of the phenomenon, if you will. So this health condition has really exploded, and I think the uh, epidemic gives more gravitas to the actual problem. And I do think that by numbers, does uh, obesity reach epidemic standards? I think that's fair to say that it is a high enough prevalence and an increased trend to warrant that term to give it more attention and importance. Absolutely. And if it's not there now, unfortunately, we seem to be on a course that suggests we'll be there soon. But we know that not all populations are being affected equally in this obesity epidemic. What can you tell me about that? Who's most at risk right now, whether by socioeconomic status or any other factors? In the world of childhood obesity, there really is a disproportionate prevalence in children. So the obesity rate is really influenced by gender as well as age and race ethnicity. And the overall trends really do suggest that as children age, we see higher rates of obesity and overweight. And I'm using the terms together, so there's some slight difference with who becomes the obesity trend and the overweight trend. Right now, approximately 32% of children and adolescents between ages of 2 and 19 years are overweight, obese combined, 32%. That's an impressive number. Of that, those considered overweight make up about 15% of that number, and then a little higher percentage, 17%, are obese. But overall, 32% of children and adolescents are overweight slash obese. And when you look at those trends, there has been a slight decrease, you know, believe it or not, a couple of percentage points decreased since the last CDC report. The, the numbers I'm talking about today are from the 2014 CDC report by Cynthia Ogden. She publishes every couple of years on the latest trends. So there's been a slight decrease in the overall overweight obesity prevalence in childhood adolescent ages. However, the shift has been increased within overweight and obesity. There's an increase in the obese 
category. That's problematic. And when we think about where are these trends, what do they look like across age and gender and race ethnicity, overall the trends are higher as children get older. By race and ethnicity, their prevalence of obesity is highest in Hispanic or Latino school-age children, so that's 6 to 11 years. There's about a 46.2% rate in that age range, with girls being slightly higher than boys. And then when you go to the population of African-American children, there's about, in the teenagers, the adolescent age range, 12 to 19 years, we see the highest prevalence in the African-American group, and that's at about 43.6%. So overall, 32% school-age, 6 to 11-year-old kids of Hispanic or Latino background the overweight obese rate there is 46.2%. High schoolers, 12 to 19-year-olds, is African-American. Combined rates there for boys and girls, it's almost 44%. So you can see age, gender, there is a breakdown in boys and girls, mostly higher in girls, but in some of the age ranges and ethnic backgrounds, it, it is higher in boys. So the obesity and overweight prevalence increases with age is higher in some of minority groups of color. And it really is um, the trends show differences by age and ethnicity. Boys and girls can sometimes flip-flop who has the highest prevalence, but there are differences across those three categories, if you will. It seems to me that there's sort of a snowballing effect potentially here. So as more people get obese, of course, the more we see other obese people reflected back in front of us, and that becomes a version of normal, at least in this country. And so... I want to get at the dangers of obesity because it seems that there's at least the potential that at some point people start to look at obesity as an aesthetic problem. So, yeah, it would be great to be thinner and look better in these pair of jeans or whatever, but I also look like other people around me. And it would be great to be fit enough to run a marathon, but I never really wanted to do that. And so, you know, yeah, I'm a little bit bigger than I need to be or probably should be, but that it's just an aesthetic thing. But the dangers of obesity go so much beyond that in terms of what it, the conditions and problems that it can cause, not only immediately and later in life. So give me a sense of what those are and how obesity can kind of be the key that unlocks doors that we don't want open. Well, I think you bring up a really important point that you don't want to shift the norm because the trends are showing higher prevalence of obesity in children and adults, quite frankly. When I work with kids who are overweight or obese and when I work with other healthcare providers with those groups, that target population, if you will, to always consider the condition of childhood overweight obesity and for the just for the sake of simplicity, I'm just gonna say obesity, but I'm kinda of combining the two categories. To consider it as unhealthy weight. I try really hard not to even use the terms overweight and obesity because I don't want to sugarcoat anything, no pun intended, but I also want to make sure that the focus is on health, not aesthetics, as you're talking about. And there was a time with the CDC growth curves, I was not part of this, but there was a group convened to determine should they actually, they, the experts at CDC, should they readjust this growth curve because how can you say that anybody above the 85th percentile is overweight and anybody above the 95th percentile is obese? That means you're saying only 15% of the population is going to be overweight or obese in childhood when we really have 32% in that category. So how can 32% of kids live in a category that's only allowing 15% in? So there was this consternation and the experts scratching their heads and saying, should we shift this curve? 
so that really 15% is really represented by 15%. 15% on the curve really reflects the 15% of the population. And the resounding answer was no, to use more late per people's jargon, is are we going to supersize our kids by saying 85th percentile is not going to be bumped up to a higher weight category? The bans were set on weights of children in the 1970s, in late 60s and early to mid-70s, based on health, based on kids were not exhibiting, well, type 2 diabetes didn't exist in childhood in the 1970s. So based on actual child's health, not so much their aesthetic. So if we focus on health, and I know for kids and teenagers that talking about, well, gee, if you eat healthy and are active, you're probably not going to have diabetes or hypertension. That doesn't resonate with a teenager. There is a need to talk about what is important to them, of course, you know, and what is important to them really is, like you said, getting into those particular genes or wearing that dress to the prom or, you know, whatever is the goal for the kid, the child, or the teenager. So it's a delicate balance between how we can promote health vis-a-vis healthy weight and still address the child and family culture because I work, I'm very lucky to work with kids and families of many different backgrounds. So respecting what is the culture in that family and how they eat and how they move and how to make that a more healthy experience is my focus. So I want to come back to that conversation appealing to youth in areas that matter. But let's go back to that unhealthy concept, and you mentioned type 2 diabetes. For a parent who's listening to this, for example, if they have a child who is in that unhealthy weight range, give me the short list of conditions that they might face later in life. From a physical therapist perspective, first and foremost, young children and adolescents who are overweight or obese often have joint pain, joint problems. The boys might have that slipped capital femoral epiphysis, so musculoskeletal problems, and that's going to impact your physical activity levels and abilities. From more of a physiological perspective, youth who have long-term a chronic condition of obesity could develop hypertension, could develop dyslipidemia, they could develop various other metabolic syndrome, lipid problems, as well as insulin resistance. So if a child or teen is developing these health physiological problems, that could lead to a lifetime of chronic conditions, which is going to have a negative impact on their life expectancy and certainly their quality of life. And on that life expectancy part, do we know of children who are obese, how likely they are to become adults? Do we have enough data to suggest how hard it is to get out of that obese category as an adult if you're in that category as a child? That's a good point. I know that recent reports indicate that obesity accounts for 10% of deaths in healthcare spending in the United States. So this is a 2013 report that came out. This is in the adult world. So the likelihood of a child or an adolescent who is obese being an adult who's obese is approximately 60 to 80%. If you are a child of an o- a parent who is obese, you are 60 to 70% likely to be obese yourself. And to if you're obese in your child-adolescent years, you have a similar risk being obese in adulthood. So that really actually sets up this next question. There's a recent Harvard University systematic review that suggests that kids are gaining weight at an increased rate in the summer compared to the school year. And I look at that and I think, okay, is that a 
inactivity problem during the summer, which, you know, people often cite video games and all these things that are more sedentary play activities compared to, say, 10, 20, or especially 30 years ago. Is it a nutrition problem in terms of poor snack choices that are easily available at home versus a more regimented eating schedule at school? Is it almost what you suggested right there, too, potentially being around parents who are overweight themselves and have the same bad habits and following their habits? Do we have an idea why that phenomenon exists? It's a great study, and it's a great question. And I think youth in the summer have more free time, and sometimes that free time is sedentary time, and sometimes that free time is allowing the child to make their own choices on food. So I think that in the school day, a child is really scheduled for when they do eat. I'm not saying that they always eat good, eat well, but they are scheduled for when they do eat. And during the summer months, if a child is not actively engaged in summer activities, there's more opportunity to eat and there's more opportunity to make less healthy food choices. And in the summer months, if one is not participating in some structured activities, there's more opportunity to choose sedentary behaviors. I was impressed when I first started working with some kids in some fitness programs after school and summer programs in Philly, I was really impressed when kids would come back from summer, and in my mind I'm thinking they're going to be healthier and more fit because they've had the summer off to run around and be kids. And we're finding that kids after summer break were actually putting on weight. To me, it's examining what are they doing for their informal versus formal play activities and what, how much free time do they have to make their own choices. And this is absolutely no reflection on parents. Parents work, kids might be home, that's just, that is life. So to me, it's more of a, what are the kids doing in their day? And in Philly, I work in a summer camp program, a day camp at a YMCA with um, PT students in the summer. And actually, if kids are going to those kinds of programs, you know, when I think summer camp, I think running around in a park in the woods or sleeping in tents and cabins, that is a summer camp reality for some people, but certainly not for a lot of people. So day camp, summer camp, got to be really cognizant of what kinds of activities and what kind of food offerings are you giving the children during the course of those summer camp hours. So I think it behooves summer camp programs or summer activity programs to keep in mind that energy balance of what are we offering for their snacks and what are we offering for their activity experiences during these sessions. And kids left to their own devices don't always have those opportunities to participate in more structured activity where there's even structured snack times. So I think that's part of the problem of weight gain in the summer. I want to come back to your experience with those camps in a moment, how a parent who's listening to this who recognizes that their child is in the overweight or obese category, kind of steps that they can take to get better. But let's talk a little bit more broadly first. As we've already hinted in so many ways, this is a problem of epidemic proportions, and it overlaps so many things related to socioeconomic status and habits and what is available as recreation today in in this country and, and certainly others. From a big picture perspective, if you were trying, if you sort of had the unlimited means and you were trying to solve America's obesity problem, what are the things, the big level things that need to happen to start changing the way that this graph is going and turn things back in the right direction? If I all of a sudden had a magic wand and could uh, promote, advocate, make some changes, the first thing I would do is remove food commercials 
from television. The number of unhealthy snack and cereal commercials that children are exposed to on a daily basis really impact what they think they want to eat and what they might be nagging their parents to uh, get for them. So I think that would be the first thing I would do. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be great? I would absolutely change signage. There wouldn't be signage and billboards and, you know, advertising around calorie-dense foods, more sweet foods. I'd like to talk about the high fructose (laughs) um, in a lot of foods as well. So I would take it from... And I think this is happening. I don't I, I don't want to sound like I am absolutely being disrespectful to any approaches that we have to change the environment to a healthier choice. Literally, the low-hanging fruit should be fruit. I know that the First Lady's program, Let's Move, is really working hard to get into communities and make that paradigm shift of healthy eating and healthy activity through things like advertising, through things like neighborhood changes to make safer parks and more walk-to-school bus programs and more healthy food choices, and whether it's preschool, school, daycare, and high school cafeterias or snack time environments. So I think there are a lot of really good, healthy, programmatic ideas that are becoming reality, and I think we need to see more of it. The food desert, Philadelphia has really benefited from more grocery stores in more low-resourced or low-income neighborhoods to provide opportunities for better food choices for the residents of those communities. And I think that that's really important because I've had parents say to me, you've given me a lot of really interesting ideas, Miss Maggie, to help my child become more healthy, but how can I do that in the neighborhood I live in? And we've got a great program, the Healthy Corner Stores and the health program within Philadelphia. So there's a lot of neighborhoods that have bodegas and that don't necessarily sell the most nutrient-dense. They sell more calorie-dense foods. But there's been a real movement in Philadelphia through the initiative for the healthy food in the corner stores. We've seen more choices in corner stores now, inclusive of fruits and vegetables. One may think that's a rather easy fix. But it really isn't if a corner store has not had refrigeration or refrigerated case to be able to house foods that require that. So it's been a very good and not necessarily easy fix, but it's been nice to see fruit stands popping up and vegetable stands popping up and also community gardens, more of those popping up in some old empty lots. Envisioning gardens, healthy corner stores, and safe and healthy parks and recreation for which myself, that's my public health hat, so then when I go and put my PT hat on, wouldn't it be great that when I see a child in physical therapy for in which I'm trying to promote healthy, active lifestyles and helping the child and family come up with strategies to move towards and get to a healthy weight, wouldn't it be great if I had these lists of references and resources in their communities at my fingertips? So that's what we're working towards, how to make the community healthy so that if you have a child as your patient and that child and family is looking for recommendations, they exist in their neighborhoods. To me, that's the goal ring. And then around that, there's less competing priorities or competing advertising to try to have the child and family make less healthy choices. If a parent has a child in that 
unhealthy weight zone or going in that direction. I don't want to minimize the, the nutrition part of it and, and how difficult it can be, especially if a, a child has habits that they've grown accustomed to, to get them back on a healthy track and accepting, if not preferring necessarily, some healthier choices to some less healthy choices. But let's talk about the activity part of it in your camps that you've done. How much activity does a child need, especially once they get into that zone, and how do you incentivize that, especially in this era when we've got smartphones and tablets and all these different wired devices that, for the most part, have kids sitting down and being passive? How do we encourage children to want to be active in that way? To help incentivize a child to become active when they are at a weight that makes it really hard to be active is a challenge, and kids are great. But kids can be brutally honest and a little bit unkind to one another. So I have had the experience where young men who were obese, and I was with them at a park in Philadelphia. We did this as part of our programming. They wouldn't play. They wouldn't get on a basketball court. And I was like, come on, guys. You know, we, we do this as part of our activity. We've all chosen this as part of our activity. And they wouldn't get out on the court and play with kids who were typical or healthy weight because they knew that they weren't going to be able to play at the same level and they just didn't want to interact with that group at that. And this has happened a couple of times. I'm not going to say I don't want to make it bigger than what it is, but it was a very good learning moment for me. So I also have to consider what you offer to the young people and how you offer it and structure it. Coming from my 30 years as a pediatric physical therapist, inclusion is key, but sometimes maybe inclusion isn't the best way for that child or adolescent at that particular time. Playing, working, being active together with kids who are overweight and kids who are healthy weight, you know? So part of me goes to video gaming because that is kind of becoming a norm, if it's not already a norm, in recreation for children, right, and adolescents. So why passive video gaming? Why not active video gaming? So I talk about that with families and with kids. So the first thing is I find out what they like to do most because the physical activity one is going to do is the activity that one likes to do. So what's the physical activity you like to do most? No surprise, most of the boys that I've been working with want to play basketball and most of the girls want to jump rope. Those are the two that are at the top of the list. So creating programs where they can be successful So it's really doing a task analysis. What does basketball entail? I played basketball as a kid myself, so I know what it entails, and I know what the training entails. And it's great to have PT students help you in creating a program in which a child who's overweight or obese can be successful. So you will play half-court games, perhaps, when you first start, so that until they become more conditioned. The point is, what is the task they like to do, and how can we make it challenging but not overly challenging where they will not succeed and that's the key thing to talk to families about i've talked to parents and they say of course my child is active they go out every day after school great that's great so let's talk about what they do when they go out after school and the parent may not know because they may be in the house or at work but they just know that their child goes out and in talking with the kids and the parents the kids do go out but their idea of playing and being active is not necessarily the level of play and activity for a positive health-related fitness outcome. So what I try to do with kids is teach them what moderate to vigorous physical activity is. The national recommendations for physical activity guidelines for Americans that came out in 2008 indicates that children should have 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity 
most, if not all, days of the week. That's just to maintain where you are. So if a child who's overweight or obese, if I can get 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity, that's great. Would prefer if you could get more towards 90. Does it have to happen in one chunk? No. Could it be if you're going for the 60 minutes? Could it be three 20-minute bouts of moderate to vigorous activity? Could it be two 30-minute bouts of moderate to vigorous activity? I like to keep it at least a 10-minute bout so you get some endurance. But really, if a child says, I don't have an hour a day, Miss Maggie, I said, let's break this down. Can you walk to school? Is that a 15-minute walk? Can you walk it at a pace where you get a little short of breath? That's 15 minutes. Check. In school, when you go in the playground for your 15 or 20-minute recess, can you get involved in playing tag? How can we make that an active time? That's 30 minutes. Check. Walking home from school, can you walk home at that same higher pace, more vigorous pace, so you feel your heart beating a little faster and you feel like you're, you know, you're working a little harder? So trying to infuse in the day that 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity is the goal so that it's not an add-on that may fall by the wayside. Obviously, different kids are going to be motivated different ways, but when you were talking earlier about the self-consciousness of an athletic or overweight person trying to mix it up with kids that are in the healthy weight range, it just makes me think of how self-conscious, especially youth, can be. And Does it help to try to get activity into their lives without making it specifically about their weight problem? Yes. I think that that's a very good point. And a colleague of mine who's a cardiologist, he said, we have developed a culture in which it's a norm to drive to a window and get your food in a box and drive away. How can we shift the culture back to the norm is to walk, is to move, is to play, and is to eat healthy food that's, you know, been picked up at a grocer or, pick, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's how do we shift back to pre-drive-through, sure. pick up, you know, dr- drive everywhere and pick up fast food. So that's a interesting perspective, observation, and it's a tall order. But I think that putting, at the risk of sounding corny, putting play back into a kid's daily life is key. Putting active play back into a child's daily life is key. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of structured passive play, generally speaking, in childhood today. And some of it's necessary. Some of it's, you know, I've had parents tell me I don't want my child out in the neighborhood because, you know, I'm concerned about safety in in the neighborhood and I'm concerned about traffic in the neighborhood, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there are real concerns in families depending on the neighborhoods and communities they live in. And then there are real concerns for the child depending on, their self-esteem and self-perception in their physical activity abilities and their weight category. So those things really have to be treated seriously when you're trying to help a kid engage in healthier activities. The current program we have now is for any kids, overweight or not, healthy weight, overweight. One of our past programs, we started out with combining, and then we had some difficulty with kids not being kind to each other, so we went to just an exclusive kids' fitness program for children who were overweight and or obese. And in that program, I specifically designed it with my colleagues to not have a child fail. So in my mind, I want to see a child do 15, 20, 30 minutes of continuous physical activity at moderate to vigorous levels, which is 60 to 80% of your heart rate or your oxygen consumption. However, you're measuring that, you know, taking a pulse, wearing a heart rate monitor, or just doing the talk test. If you can talk to me and sing a song and tell me about your day, 
while you're going on a brisk walk, you're not walking hard enough. You should get a little bit breathless, you know? Anyway, the point is that as I'm trying to help these kids get more active, I don't want to say, get on that. In one place we were able to run the program at a community health center, the 11th Street Health Center, which is part of Drexel and it's in Philadelphia. We had the great opportunity to use the physical therapy clinic area, which had some elliptical machines, some stationary bikes, some treadmills. So we were able to use those in our programming with the children and the adolescents. But I said, you know, don't do that, Maggie. Don't ask them to be on a machine for 10 minutes. So one 12-year-old boy's goal was, his his self-selected goal at the end of our program, this was one I think that was a 12-week after-school program, was to be able to walk on the treadmill at a fast, quote-unquote, fast pace for up to a half an hour. And he got there, and he started out at maybe five minutes before he needed to get off. So I would set up their activities as, just do that one for five minutes, do that one for five minutes, do that one for five minutes. And, you know, if I looked at it from a health perspective, I'd be like, you know what, Maggie, you want a child to be doing one activity for 10, 15, or 20 minutes, but don't set it up that way with these kids. Let them be successful in three different activities for five minutes each until they can build up that stamina and endurance to gain more success in the activity and have more endurance. So that's one of the strategies. So don't put expectations on a child. I mean, I wouldn't put an expectation on any child who had any kind of a health problem to be able to do something at the same level of a child who has healthy weight and doesn't have any other conditions that could impact their activity. So I think that's one of my goals. On the other side of that, I don't want to under-challenge them either. So it's finding that line where they're being challenged enough and enjoying the activity to gain a skill. And that young man, that particular young man that I'm referring to who was able to be on a treadmill for 28 to 30 minutes, that was his goal. So he incentivized himself, and I think that's key. I do an interviewing with the kids to find out what is it you need and want to gain. One boy's goal was to be able to ride his bicycle and keep up with the kids in the neighborhood. And I said, great, can you give me a time frame that we want to do that in so that we can give it a measurable kind of a time frame? He said, 20 minutes. I want to be able to be out on my bike 20 minutes with the kids in the neighborhood. That was his goal, and we got there. So I want to close out with this. You know, earlier you talked about how a youth is not going to talk about hypertension, isn't going to be a motivating factor for them at all. When we look at those goal sessions you're doing, I assume those are one of the things that parent could even try with their own child. Are those essentially as much for you in figuring out how to motivate them as it is for the child and giving themselves a goal that's worth pursuing? Yes. So for me, when I'm working with the children, either in our summer camp, our YMCA summer camp program, which we call Get Moving, or the former program we had exclusively for children who were overweight or obese, which was called Kids Fitness, in those programs, there is a health education component as well as behavioral skill building component. So we first want to know what the kids like to do and what the kids want to do because they have to have buy-in, right? They need to have buy-in. What we do in the programs, even though they're kids-centric, we always invite parents to participate in the kids bring home health fact sheets about physical activity and eating. And just like there is a, we have a My Plate for Food, there is a physical activity pyramid and there are different kinds of physical activity that one engages in, some more leisure, some more active, some more passive. So trying to provide education to the child and for the child to bring it home to the family because 
reasonably so, summer camp is kids are at summer camp while parents are at work, right? So the idea is health education and skill building and exposing the children to multiple kinds of physical activity. We've had great fun and great opportunities in our summer camp programs. Sometimes we do dance. Sometimes we do yoga. Sometimes we do obstacle courses. Sometimes we do sports. Different kids like different kinds of physical activity. So finding the hook that will light the fire for the child and then helping the child learn what it is like to have a health-related response, an exercise response, and that's what we're going for so that we can get you more active and we want you to know how to take your pulse and we want you to know what it feels like to have a good exercise response. And then there can be, well, there's the kid who's under-exercising and he's not getting to his moderate to vigorous physical activity range. And there's the other kid who's overzealous and is maybe working too hard and we want to pull that child back and not work that hard. So the idea is health education to learn what it feels like to be physically active at a moderate to vigorous pace that's healthy and safe for that child. And let's expose the child to multiple kinds of activities to find out which one is the one they really like and the one we can help promote for them and to have these health education fact sheets and information go home with the children and hopefully, not always, get to the parents so that they're getting these fact sheets or these did-you-know sheets and then incorporating some of these physical activity and healthy eating ideas into their family routine. That makes it, one would hope, a sustainable kind of a program. Well, it's obviously a complex problem. As you've illustrated, there are lots of different ways of going about attacking it and trying to make it better. Maggie O'Neill, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.